0: The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University's School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Knaysen. Today, I am grateful to have scholars, Professor Nicole Busby and Professor Grace James here on the show as my guests. Thank you both so much for being here. Nicole Busby is a professor of human rights, equality, and justice at the University of Glasgow. She's interested in labor law and equality, gender equality, and the regulation of paid work and unpaid care. Grace James is professor of law at University of Reading. She is interested in the legal rights of working carers and in the gendered nature of employment laws. Together, Professors Busby and James recently published a book called A History of Regulating Working Families, Strains, Stereotypes, Strategies and Solutions. Congratulations to both of you on the publication of your book. Thank you, thank you very much. Can both of you tell me really quickly, in about 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory?
1: So, shall i go shall i go first nicole um so for me vulnerability theory is a theory that begins with a very simple message that all humans are vulnerable throughout their life course and that acceptance of this vulnerability ought to guide state behavior so it it really is a very simple message a simple theory in many ways but incredibly powerful and and therefore shouldn't be underestimated because it fundamentally challenges existing dominant paradigms uh, approaches laws policies constructions norms um many of which have have as we found in in our research developed over many many years and become incredibly ingrained and accepted if you like as as the truth as the as the way that things just naturally are and and so vulnerability theory highlights and challenges those existing allocations of power and resources and privilege. And
2: the only thing that I would add to to Grace's um, definition or explanation um, that she that she's given is is to say that it's really connected to Um, our embodied state as human beings. So it taps into our basic humanity in a way that is a a real leveller, I think. And and that's, for me, what brings the value of vulnerability theory, particularly in the context in which we've used it. So it's about the embodied state um, and the the vulnerability that we experience, as Grace said, throughout our life course, which might change um, or be um, supported in different ways. which is always there. It's a a constant Um, and I think that that gives it a a wonderful kind of leveling quality.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your book. Can you tell me about how you have incorporated vulnerability theory into it and how that vulnerability analysis makes it different or unique and adds to your fields?
2: I I can lead with that one. Um, the, The book's aim is to chart the history of how working families have been regulated In the UK, um, primarily, I think it has wider connotations um, and wider implications um, in in other parts of the world, but we focus on our own jurisdiction of the United Kingdom. Um, And it does this by critiquing the various forms of um, state intervention and its impacts on those groups targeted by law and policy, including women workers, parents, children, and older people. Um, The focus of the book is on the post-war era um, but as the book demonstrates many of the current um, provisions originate from much further back in some cases several hundred years and the book considers how regulation has shaped and continues to shape the lives of these groups that we look at in specific and sometimes very unhelpful ways and that analysis shows us how we can learn from a historical perspective and what that perspective can contribute to future policy making. I don't know if Grace wants to add anything to that.
1: Just really in terms of of how vulnerability theory informed that, um, I mean, our starting point was very much looking at the history of UK regulation and the impact of uh, uh, on the lives of working families, and that's where it began. But but then we we really did, as, as Nicole said, we were searching for an approach that that helped us to really deconstruct and untangle some of the phenomenon that we were finding as we were, were undertaking that research in the way that we were undertaking uh, it. Um, and importantly, you know, we, we were looking at whose interests were served and whose interests were promoted as a result of particular strategies and solutions and, and and importantly for us who's weren't um, being promoted and served and also then thinking about alternative constructions that might offer or could offer a different future for working families and i think that's how we both independently came um to really enjoy and, and, and to, to find expression in vulnerability theory. And, and we use that very much as a means of reevaluating and critiquing the legal responses, the choices, the dominant discourses, the frameworks that had developed over quite a long time period. Um, and what vulnerability theory did was it it very much shed some light on the conflicts and the tensions that have long existed between the demands of of, um, unpaid labour and the demands of paid labour. And and there were particular aspects of the theory that helped us in that endeavour. Would you like us to just um, really highlight those perhaps, Mangala? Would that be useful? So the the main one I I think that we started with was placing the vulnerable subject at the heart of our analysis because um, the vulnerable subject enabled us to challenge laws and policies and approaches and discourses that relied and have long relied upon and perpetuated or valorized the liberal self um as as and and that's very much particularly in in, in the uk and we know in in other um jurisdictions as well that the liberal self is 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 often seen to be the most desirable the most Achievable ideal for our human existence. Um, it represents ideals of autonomy, of independence, and self sufficiency, um, which might represent our lived reality or some some of our lived realities at some point in our in our life course. But it certainly doesn't represent all of it. Um, you know, babies, children, those who become dependent later in life uh, are the most obvious family members that that we consider in the book and 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 so this informed our research because it basically enabled us to gauge the extent to which historically we've promoted the liberal self and then to explore what other insights are possible when we look instead through this lens of of the vulnerable self Um, so so the fictive Liberal subject was evident in the majority of contexts that we looked at. Um, it, it, It was in the interest of this liberal subject that the state consistently was acting, you know, and it was it was a reality, therefore, that that was excluding the needs of a whole range of working carers and the recipients of their care. So the whole landscape, and this was something that, that, that we were both really fascinated by, the whole landscape that we considered is covered with examples of, of distinctions throughout history, either for good or for ill, um, that made the place of the unencumbered liberal subject the measure. So the lone mother or the absent father, the neglected child, the aged parent are othered if you like and and because of their distance from this ideal this core ideal and and sometimes we found that this was done to promote rights um, with good intentions to try and to help those groups and and, and in in the in the particular times in history but you know in some instances um, it it became quite sinister in a way because certain groups were not simply differentiated um, but stigmatized and this reconstructed as as a problem to be solved I mean one example um, is our focus on children and they're an obvious example a child has no capacity to be autonomous this has always been the case even at the point in history where many were economically active and from quite a young age but they but they did so on or behalf um, on on, on the, sorry on behalf of, um, and definitely under the instruction of their family, on family and adult members of the family. So, they are, if you like, the antithesis to the liberal self, um, and they have no capacity to be otherwise. they they're the, they're the you, you can't get further removed from that ideal. Um, but over time, what we we find is that they also start to be constructed as a burden in terms of preventing others to become um, that ideal. So they're preventing parents, particularly women, mothers, um, from being autonomous and independent and productive in any economic sense. So so what vulnerability theory does for us in in this particular instance, is it doesn't construct children in this way. It acts, as we've said, as, as a leveler, it elevates them into human beings who are worthy and valued and deserving of state consideration in a very different way than than we we've seen throughout history i don't know if you have anything else nicole that you want to add particularly we think i think about the responsive state as well was another area that we that we looked at wasn't it
0: really quickly i just want to chime in and ask you to explain a little bit the difference between the liberal self or liberal subject and the vulnerable self or vulnerable subject
2: Okay, um, I can do that. Um, So the liberal self is, in my mind anyway, um, begins or is predicated on what I think is a very false ideal. It's this notion that everyone is independent, um, we are autonomous, we act um, rationally, um, particularly in economic terms, and we're driven by a sense of um, sort of individualism. that attaches us in, in many ways to the kind of marketized economies that in which we in, in the developed world live. The vulnerable subject, in my mind, is a much more realistic uh, perception or, or idea of the human subject, the, the, the human being, if you like, um, which is, as I said, based on our, our embodiment. Um, it's based on, well, it is the human condition. Vulnerability is the human condition. It lays at the core of everything that we that we do everything that we are. And so it's empirically observed, if you like. Um, it doesn't set up a false ideal. In fact, it brings everything back to the natural human state um, in a way that, is, that enables law and policy to, to, to kind of flow from that um, in a way that is responsive, that is realistic, that actually uh, attaches itself to the way that we are to, to, to our, our natural state, um, rather than forcing us into silos and the, the pressures of feeling that we have to conform to certain, what I would say, a, a stereotypical notions that don't really have any or very little um, attachment to, to reality. Um, so for me, I would say that, you know, what we're talking about in, in, when we talk about the liberal subject is, is a fictive notion. And the vulnerable subject is a realistic notion, a realistic idea of the human experience, the human condition.
0: Thank you. And then I think you wanted to say a little bit more um, to follow up with what Grace was saying earlier.
2: Um, just this notion, I think, of the responsive state and what state responses uh, should be or could be. And again, it ties very much into that idea of this kind of leveling of the human experience and recognizing that what we value, what we have valued or valorized in the past, and what the legal system certainly reflects back at us, isn't necessarily achievable or realistic. And I think that can put people under enormous pressure in terms of trying to conform with these uh, unrealistic notions. And so in my mind, what the state should be doing is, again, based on that kind of empirical understanding of human experience, It should be seeking to to deal with disadvantage, inequality, where it does occur, and and it will occur, in societies. Uh, But the state's role, in my mind, is to kind of plug the gaps, to to fill the spaces um, that enable all individuals to to flourish equally in a way that that recognises that we will, over our life course, go through different stages, go through different experiences, um, and need different things. So, you know, without state response, I think it's very difficult actually to, to recognize or to do very much about our vulnerability. On our, We can't do that on our own. It's something that has to come from a, a collective state response where the, where the state acts on behalf of all of us. Grace spoke about the, the false ideal or the false notion that, you know, the, the state isn't active or, or doesn't act. We talk a lot in liberalism about, you know, free markets and this idea that we don't need state intervention. And I think that's never true. The state constructs the market in lots of ways and perpetuates uh, the market uh, in sort of liberal system. And so the state, I think, as Feynman has said many times, the state is always active. But what we should be questioning uh, when we look at policy and law, is, is on whose behalf does the state act and uh, making sure that it acts uh, in the best way on behalf of all of us, whatever our particular circumstances and whatever contextual uh, realities we find ourselves in.
0: Um, are there particular policies that you would recommend or that you have seen historically that did respond to human vulnerability?
2: I think there are very few. I mean, that, that was actually what was very enlightening about, about the book. Is that we didn't really find, uh, even where you have um, policies or laws that look as if they're um, attaching themselves to the right kind of outcomes, so for example the anti-discrimination framework, the the equality framework, looks from the outside like it has the right values, it's trying to do the right thing, the goals are are, are, you know in, in many ways kind of laudable, But when you look at the reality of that framework and how it actually operates, it can be very divisive. It privileges the privileged in many ways. It perpetuates existing inequalities in many ways. And it operates, um, in most systems at least, in a way that that divides and compares and sets up these ideals that are then really unachievable for many people to, to aspire to. And that can have a really difficult and and actually detrimental effects, I think, you know, rather than overcoming disadvantage and inequality, I think that can actually perpetuate that disadvantage and inequality in ways that are very unhelpful. Um, And we speak about that quite a lot in the book in different contexts, in the different contexts and the different groups in which we we explore uh, the way in which the law uh, has developed. So I think what we would take away from that is the power of law. Law is, is very powerful. It has great normative power, great normative force. Most people aspire to be law abiding. Most people have respect for law and policy and want to do the right thing. But if you feel that you don't quite fit the kind of image or ideal that is you know, uh, reflected back at you, I think that can be very dispiriting, It can actually make things very difficult for people in achieving any kind of fulfilment in their lives. Even laws that look as if, as I said, they, they are along the right lines and, and are, are recognising that, you know, people come from different backgrounds, have different experiences and so on, can end up perpetuating and, and exacerbating uh, inequalities that already exist in the society. So we found very, I can't actually think of any really successful examples in the UK framework where vulnerability theory or something akin to that has been used in a, in a productive and effective way. There's lots of potential for that to happen but I don't think at the, at the current time that, that is what's happening. I don't think that it has been used in any impactful way that I can, that I can pinpoint.
1: I agree completely with, with what Nicole said. I mean, the, the only thing I'll add is that that was something that when we were looking at, at at this topic, you know, really was why vulnerability theory pushed us outside of our comfort zone. In a way, I think I think Nicole and I are both um, naturally quite policy driven, and natural naturally in the past have been wanting to find solutions that can fit within frameworks. But but really had had become a little bit despondent about how we were rehearsing the same old arguments. You know, we were looking in this um, project for. An alternative to something that doesn't just tinker with the edges of what's there, and and what we found, um, it's it's not that necessarily what we found was all bad. I mean, there were some good pieces of legislation that have helped improve the lives of, um, working families. But but they're tinkering with the edges. They're not really grasping the 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 heart of, of the potential of putting the vulnerable subject at, at, at the heart of 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 how we we start to develop laws in this area and policies. And, and can I just say one more thing just about, you know, I mean, the role of the responsive state is really important here. Um, it's, it's not to prevent or limit vulnerability. Um, you know, as we said, vulnerability is what it, it means to be human. And therefore, we don't want to do that. You know, we can't do that. And instead, it's very much about building resilience in individuals and institutions. And so resilience building is something that's at the heart of states and, and what they ought to be doing. And, and that was something I think that we found was not there when we were when we were looking at, at, at particular cohorts at particular times and periods.
0: What were some of the most surprising things that you discovered while you were doing your research together? Well for me, the historical
2: perspective, I hadn't really thought about the way in which law and state responses have developed over time. You know, we tend to look at the snapshot of where we are now and and we don't really question too much how we how we got there Uh, so that was very enlightening for me to do that kind of historical trajectory and look back and trace the law that we have now back to its origins and one thing that really shines through for me is that you know in the UK we pride ourselves on this notion of the welfare state as a means of and, and the original vision of that was that it was a means of providing a fair allocation of state resources from cradle to grave and it's very much tied in with notions about National Health Service and so on. And what we found was that that vision has not been fully realized. Its progress has been stalled in part by, actually by the anti-discrimination framework itself, which assumes that all workers, if we look at that in the work context, are similarly situated, and that the effects of historical discrimination are not then relevant to decision-making. And that can't be right. I mean, I I have to question that more than ever now. Um, So that was very enlightening. Furthermore, assumptions, as I've said, based on kind of stereotypical notions, abound in the, the rationale underpinning the regulatory framework in the UK and elsewhere. So this mythical standard worker, someone who is autonomous, unfettered by care responsibilities, is still the subject of so much employment law and policy and that means as we've said that those who are unable to conform with that model mostly women with care responsibilities but increasingly men who want to engage with their care responsibilities more are othered and treated as atypical. Now that hasn't all happened by accident a lot of that as Grace said has actually been the result of some quite kind of sinister policy making particularly around women and work which was one of the areas that that I focused on in the research for the book. So women's relationship with paid work and unpaid care has in the UK um, been instrumentalized by the state. Since, since women engaged in both in a kind of organized, formal way, that's been the story. So during wartime, nurseries sprung up, women were able to engage in, care, in work outside of the home Paid work because men weren't there to fill those jobs that needed doing, you know, the war effort, for example. As soon as the men returned from war, nurseries closed down and women were kind of forced back in the 1950s to the home and in their role to their role as, as caretaker and homemaker. So this instrumentalization makes perfect sense to me now that I can think about that in those historical terms, um, in terms of where we are now and why we find it so difficult actually to throw off some of those perhaps stereotypical notions of gendered divisions of work. However, when you try and challenge that in the modern context and say, well, you know, men need, uh, men need uh, rights and policy and, and legal support to help them to uh, engage more with unpaid care, the criticism that's leveled at that kind of um, idea is, oh, we can't interfere in the private realm of the home. You know, you can't interfere in people's social lives. It's wrong to do that, but it's not wrong when it applies or has been applied historically to women and the way in which their interrelationship with work and care has been shaped and molded and in many ways dominated, I think, by law and policy. So that opened my eyes, looking at that through a historical lens, I think explained lots of things to me about how we are or how we've got to where we are now that I'd always kind of puzzled over a bit, so the history I think was really helpful in opening my eyes and making me question the kind of uh, structures the kind of institutions that we now have and how, and how we got those institutions and, and structures, and also questioning their um, their relevance actually to the to the modern world and and to the way in which not just families, but individuals and populations and societies organise themselves. There's a kind of mismatch or a misfit between those two things that I think vulnerability helps to explain and also to offer a, a way out of in, in many ways. So that for me was my kind of the takeaway message using the, the historical um, analysis I thought was really helpful.
1: Absolutely, and and I think very similar for me. Really, I think we we both really wanted to um, look historically at this area for some time, um, and it it's a very difficult project to undertake to look at such a big area. Over, we we thought we'd be looking at. Uh, post second world war we thought we'd be looking at certain cohorts and we kind of had in our mind how it was going to work out and it didn't work out that way once you start jumping into history with with an open frame of mind you can you can really find things and tensions and conflicts that existed and and that oversight and you know the benefit of hindsight and and knowing what we know now and um with the tools of vulnerability theory it enabled us to have that whole picture and to, to try and make sense of something that really does does feed into to what we do and the research that that we do and will continue to do. I think for me a key aspect was was the role of the state. I, I guess I'd I'd not really taken on board how key that is and how central that is to everything. A, a book allowed us to look structurally, institutionally, and ask about how far the state was supporting all members of working families and to scrutinize its role how it was privileging certain groups ignoring others vilifying some and it, and it felt almost like there was there was a Puppet that was that was working. out oh, today we want women in the workplace. Tomorrow we don't. Today we want children to 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 be part of of our economic society to increase our wealth um, and our prosperity as a nation. But then then we didn't. And and the same with older workers. We we don't want. We want older workers to retire. And then we don't want them to retire. We want to um, halt their pensions. And there was this whole gameplay with going on at a state level, whether it was intentional or not, but it was it was happening. And I found that really interesting. And it certainly colored the way that I will look at things going forward.
0: How did the two of you end up working together on this project? Did you know each other before?
1: Ah, yes, <laughs> we did.
2: We've known each other for a long time and we've worked together on many projects actually before this one. We've never written a book together. We've edited a book together previously, which again was on work and families a few years ago now, but we met through uh, an association, one of our, our learned societies in, in the UK. And we, we just clicked, we just got on with each other. We, we worked in similar areas, overlapping interests, and we we just kind of bonded with each other. So we've always had this plan in mind that we would do something along the lines of this book. I have to say the book took longer to come to fruition than than we thought it would for various reasons. Some of those are to do with our own work and family lives getting in the way, which I suppose goes with the territory. But yeah, we, we've known each other for a long time and we are continuing to work together on on other projects I think it's unusual actually to be able to and when I explained to friends and other colleagues that I was writing a monograph with somebody else they said oh that's going to be so difficult because you won't have the same writing styles you will not have the same ideas you're going to find that really difficult and I and we didn't well I didn't any grace, grace can speak for herself. <laughs> They, it was actually a really pleasant experience. We'd already worked together, so we knew each other's patterns and thought processes. I think we write in a similar style. Um, if anything, we're quite happy to give up to the other one, whatever the critique might be. So we look at each other's work and say, oh, that doesn't quite make sense. Maybe put it this way. And we're very, I think, willing to, to do that. So it's, it's probably unusual. I'm not saying it'd be an easy thing to replicate, but it's, it's a really fruitful partnership, which, as I say, has, has brought other benefits as, as well as this book. And I hope it continues. So, yeah.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what was really interesting was that, that when we were, we were working independently and at different times on the book because of our lives and where we were, and I was on sabbatical. And just linking back to vulnerability theory, I was working for a number of, of, of months on on the book and thinking about it while Nicole was very busy uh, with some some work commit the work commitments at the time. And I discovered vulnerability theory. I read the autonomy myth, and I thought, oh, this is this is fantastic, and we could really use this, and it helps to explain a lot. But was quite nervous about asking um, Nicole about it. And and when I eventually did, Nicole had already got there. She was already on the same page. Already started. Started thinking about it already done a lot of uh, reading around it herself and that really was when the journey as far as vulnerability we were always going to write the book but that was the, when the journey about around vulnerability theory which is relatively recent for us I think but we we did have a history of working together and, and as Nicole said what was really nice is that that we're not judgmental of each other we work together and we we see this as a, as a learning opportunity we 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 take it on board if you know we want to learn we want to explore this theory and see how it works and it's, and it's 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 really useful having that conversation and those conversations over a period of time but specifically on a topic as well because I mean just thinking about a theory in the abstract is quite difficult but when you can pin it down to something that and particularly we're so busy aren't we all the time to actually to have meaningful conversations There, there was a really useful point if I can just say that well we met actually for about two two nights um in Leeds and Professor Feynman was there as a visiting scholar and and that really did coalesce the book for us we we spent a lot of time moving around cafes and discussing different aspects of the book and how it was going to come together and we had a first draft at that point but that was really when it coalesced and and, and when it worked so I think it was it was really useful to be able to do that now we we do a lot more obviously on zoom than face-to-face but uh but as, as Nicole said I'm sure it's going to continue I feel this is very much the start of our journey with with vulnerability
0: what would you like the impact of this publication to be and do you think that you'll follow it up with anything else
2: yeah i mean i'll talk about the 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 impact um, if i may I, i hope that policymakers and others concerned with the development and operation of laws don't confine themselves to this narrow vision of how things should be um, has dominated law in the sphere of work and families since the industrial revolutions and in some cases further back than that. I think we need to impart some realism so that the law is able to reflect back and respond to lived experience and the diversity and challenges that that brings. You know, Our research, um, as well as anything else, shows that families come in many shapes and forms. The nuclear family is one form but by no means the only form and to perpetuate sort of heteronormative ideals about the family men's and women's roles within that family children's roles within that family the place of older people is not good for anyone Uh, it it, it, as i say it places pressure on on individuals and family structures and others those who who don't fit those those norms and i hope i mean it's a big hope because, you know, what can you do with one book? Maybe not very much. But I think it's the beginning, as, as Grace said, of a sort of journey that we're on with the theory. And I would like to use it in ways that are maybe more policy specific. Now we've got to grips with where the law has come from, where the policy has come from and where we are today and how the theory fits with that. We, I would really like to explore the kind of future vision and how you might use it in quite specific ways, actually, within the UK and other frameworks to, to really impart a difference and to begin to, to, um, to see the world differently, to view the world differently in a, in a way that is more in touch with, with our own experiences as human beings. You asked yeah. about the future. So um, we yeah. do have some plans along those lines. Um, I mean, personally, I would like to look at vulnerability theory in the context of social justice more globally. So look at other systems of, of law and policy and find ways of joining them up. I think it can work across boundaries, across barriers, and I think that's what, for want of a better word, equality and human rights uh, frameworks should be doing. I don't think they do currently, so I'm very interested in that. But in terms of what we'd like to do in the future, we have a plan at the moment, which is very exciting. We're working on, we we both edit uh, or co-edit a journal, the International Journal of Discrimination and the Law, And we're working on a special issue of that journal, which will be a good plug here for our journal, which will be um, guest edited by Martha Feynman. And we want to look at ways in which different state responses have, or different states have reacted or responded to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, using vulnerability theory to kind of critique those responses. Um, And so that's our next project, our next joint project, which we're really excited about. And that should be, we hope, sometime in the spring of next year
0: and grace is there anything you'd like to add oh no i mean
1: i'm I'm really excited about the special edition looking at, at COVID-19 state responses and vulnerability theory I'm, I'm also looking at vulnerability theory in relation to mental health in the workplace is the area that I'm particularly interested in exploring it's in very early stages at the moment and um, um, but that's that's an area that I think is, is is crying out for some analysis using vulnerability theory and we do also have a, a piece that we're working on at the moment which which will look at how COVID-19 um, what we can learn historically and how that will help in our understanding of COVID-19 and, and and its impact on working families for for a piece that that were involved in writing as well because it was unfortunate that we hadn't managed to include that in the book I, I think our just pre-submission um, we were we were obsessed with Brexit which seems many moons ago now but we we pressed the the send button and i think within a few weeks we were were all hit by the pandemic so we didn't actually manage to cover that in the book and we we both felt that that's something we'd like to to go and explore now because i think there's a lot of things that are resonating and that we can build upon and and think about from from a vulnerability perspective
0: if there is only one thing or, or one message that readers could take away from your book what would you like it to be I think for me, it's, it's to think
1: of our book really as a conversation starter. We don't have all the answers, but we ask some really important questions. Um, We're Learning from the past, um, we, we ask about how we can better recognize our shared vulnerability. Because a, an approach that coalesces around a single unifying feature our humanity really is the only way that we can begin to think about ways of really resolving the conflicts um, that exist around reconciliation of, of paid work and unpaid care
2: and I, I agree completely with that and, and I would just add that I think if nothing else I hope that the idea promoted throughout the book um, that one, that sorry recognition of our Embodied states and universal vulnerability should provide the bedrock for all state policy uh, relevant to social and economic ordering. And I think that message has never been more relevant, actually, than it is um, at, at the present time.
0: Thank you both so much for being here.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Listeners, you can check out their book, A History of Regulating Working Families, Strains, Stereotypes, Strategies, and Solutions at bloomsbury.com. This has been an episode of Voices in Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.